Chapter Eleven of the Mystery of a Turkish Bath. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. The Mystery of a Turkish Bath by Rita. Chapter Eleven, The Dream. As Julian Estcourt's eyes closed, it seemed to him that with a sudden sharp spasm of pain. He tore himself away from that sleeping sentient portion of humanity, which was his representation, and then, without effort or consciousness of his own, he seemed floating swiftly along over a dark and misty space. A great sea tossed and moaned beneath him. He felt that someone was beside him, but he had no desire to question its personality. Now and then lights flashed through the dusky shadows which enveloped him, and as they flashed, he saw vivid pictures of plains and cities and mountains. Over one such city, bathed in the clear, lucid flame of the full moon, he seemed to pause. He saw bridges, piles of buildings, dark flowing canals, a strange medley of streets, some broad and beautiful. Others dark, narrow, and pestilential, reeking with the fumes of dram shops. There was snow on the ground. Sleighs were gliding swiftly to and fro. People spoke but seldom. An air of restraint, of fear, of rebellion impressed him, as the furtive glances and brief whispers became pregnant with meaning. Gradually. As he moved through the hurrying crowd, he was conscious of a name constantly on their lips. It was muttered by the voices of tipsy men reeling from their vile dens of intoxication, by the lips of painted women as they drew their furs around their tawdry finery, by the artisans with their pinched faces and hungry eyes, by all the classes to whom life is a bitter struggle with poverty and necessity. To and fro he seemed to move without haste, and yet with the rapidity of thought, in the magnificence of gilded saloons, in the snow-covered street, in the haunts of poverty and vice. Always and always that one word was tossed to and fro in every accent of hate and opprobrium. And when in wonder he turned to the shape floating still beside him. And would have questioned the meaning of that word, it stayed the question on his lips with a mute gesture of silence. Then, strange to say, he seemed to gather into his own consciousness a sense of deep, implacable hatred—a hatred that thrilled the air as with poisoned breath, and beat in the pulses of living men to whom existence was brutalized by tyranny and vice. The sense of this awful, murderous hate, at last, grew terrible as a burden. So fully and consciously did he recognize it, so clearly did he see of what it was capable, and so mysteriously did it seem to breathe about the very air through which he moved. It filled the pulses of the night with a horror from which he shrank aghast. It stretched a blood-red hand over the white drifts of unsullied snow. It painted out the brilliant hues of luxury and threw yet darker shadows over the sad homes of want and misery and crime. 
and more and more he strained every nerve to catch the meaning of that word which was its embodiment, and again and again he failed. Suddenly the scene changed. He was in a poor chamber, barely and miserably furnished. It lay in the centre of a pile of buildings facing a half-frozen canal. It seemed to him that the building consisted of hosts of small tenements, all swarming with human life. But he had passed up the common stairway seemingly unnoticed, and entered this special room. It was tenanted by two people, an old woman of some threescore years, with a thin worn face and grey hair banded over her hollow temples. She was thinly clad, and had an old tippet of yellow fur over her shoulders. She sat near the stove. Before her stood a young man, in the dress of a Petersburg student. They were talking low and earnestly. Again that word reached him. Again the full sense of its meaning eluded his grasp. Suddenly the comprehension of the scene became clear to him. He saw they were mother and son that he was relating some incident to her with a suppressed enthusiasm that yet made itself audible in his deep thrilling tone, and visible in the glow and sparkle of his eye. "'She is an angel,' he said at last. "'We do well to trust her. But what a risk! Think of it, mother! Five hundred lives, and only a few hours to decide their fate!' The woman's face grew white, her feeble limbs shivered as with an ague fit. "'My son,' she moaned, "'my only one, and you too may be sacrificed. "'Oh, unhappy country, unhappy fate that makes it ours! "'But you are right. "'The princess is an angel of goodness. "'She will save us. "'She has said it. They both turned involuntarily towards a small image, before which a lamp burned. He saw them kneel hand in hand before it. Then the room faded into darkness. He was in another place now. A sense of luxury, of perfume, of dreamy warmth. And then he saw, opening before him in a vista of exquisite colour, a suite of softly lighted chambers. They seemed to glow like jewels, each perfect in the richness and loveliness of its setting, and at the farthest end of one of them a woman reclined on a couch of white furs. She was wrapped in a loose gown of thick white silk, bordered also with snowy fur, and her lovely hair was unbound, and fell in a long trail of dusky splendour over the colourless purity of her surroundings. Her eyes were wide open and full of a fear that was almost horror, and, as if to account for it, he seemed suddenly to hear, coming through the fragrant stillness of those virginal chambers, the dull, heavy step of a man. She raised herself on one lovely bare arm. Her hand went to her heart. Then slowly her eyes were upraised as if in some dumb prayer for strength. A strange, frozen calm came over the perfect features. The face looked as if carved in marble. Nearer and nearer came the heavy step, reeling and uncertain now, 
yet stumbling with drunken obstinacy towards some goal to which the leaden senses pointed their brutal desires. Up to this time Julian Estcourt had only been conscious of a passive blind submission to the force controlling him. But now power seemed to thrill him, desire seemed struggling to life, the will awakened from its lethargy, and a godlike strength and force seemed to spring into life, held in check but for a moment, as the increased vigilance of sense bade him watch yet a little longer. With breath reeking of drink, with bloodshot eyes and reeling step, the satyr entered. Yet so great was the spell and charm of that womanly purity and dauntless pride, that even lust and tyranny sank abashed on the threshold, and a certain shame and hesitancy were visible in the flushed face and bloodshot eyes. "'Why are you here?' asked the woman calmly. "'Have you mistaken your way?' "'No,' and the intruder advanced with sudden boldness. "'I have come to ask if you are still of the same mind, still intent on destroying your friends.' His laugh rang out mockingly. "'Fine friends, truly, for a princess, Zeroff. "'I gave you till to-night. "'Come, which is to be sacrificed? "'Your womanly scruples, or the five hundred lives you have fooled into security?' Then she sprang to her feet, a statue no longer, but a living, passionate woman. "'I have borne enough,' she cried. "'Beware how you tempt the power that has been strong enough to keep me from you all these years. "'Beware, too, how, once again, you stain your soul with innocent blood. "'Thousands of voices are crying against you even now.' Thousands of years of suffering on your part will not avail to buy you peace in the future. I have prayed for these unfortunates. I have begged their lives at your hands on my very knees. Do not tempt me too far. I say again, you do not know what it is you do. He laughed brutally. I know, he said that you shall pay for their lives, or sacrifice them. I have waited long enough. I am sick of hearing men rave about your beauty, and feeling that that beauty is no more to me than if I were a beggar at my own gates. Do you forget, she said solemnly, the compact we made? I am not at any man's choice or disposal. My life has a mission to accomplish, and you, with all your brutal desires and evil passions, cannot turn that life from its destined purpose. Do not forget the warnings you have already received. So beautiful she looked, standing there in her floating snowy draperies, with her solemn mysterious eyes fixed upon that sullen lowering face. Beautiful and mysterious as some vestal priestess defending the secrets of her order. But that beauty, for once, seemed less to subjugate than to inflame the evil desires of that lower nature to which it was bound. 
"'I will listen no more to vague threats,' he said fiercely. "'I have paid a heavy enough price for you. "'I mean to enjoy my purchase. "'See, here is the list. "'They are fairly trapped. "'A word from you, and they are safe, these impatient fools. "'Keep silence, and the knout, the mines, "'the slow, torturing death of Siberia awaits them all. "'Now, once again.' "'Your answer?' He drew nearer, his eyes aflame, his arms outstretched. Then a change, wild and fearful, as that of the tropical tornado to a southern landscape, swept over that lovely form. Her eyes flashed, her figure seemed to dilate. Slowly she raised her arm and stretched it towards that brutal ravisher. Struggling, panting, tearing, as it were, against a power that bade him hearken to that terrible answer, Julian Estcourt cried, or seemed to cry aloud, in an agony of entreaty. Then a rushing noise, as of an unloosed torrent, was in his ears. A dull, confused pain beat like clanging hammers in his brain. His eyes opened, and he found himself bathed in the cold sweat of more than mortal terror, lying face downwards on the floor of his own bedroom. In a blind, dazed fashion he struggled to his feet and rushed to the window, and let the cool night air blow over his face. Every limb was trembling. He could not think with any clearness. In some dim, unconscious fashion he groped for his watch, found it, and looked at the time. A quarter past one. Only an hour had passed. An hour. And he felt as if centuries had swept over his head in the vivid horrors of that awful dream. But it was only a dream, he cried aloud drawing in deep, panting breaths of the pine-scented air. Oh, thank God! Thank God it was only a dream! And he sank on his knees and sobbed like a child in the starlit solitude of the night. End of chapter 11